0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome, everyone. My name is Autumn Wilkie, and I am a host with the New Books Network. Today, we're joined by Dr. Lindsay Perez-Huber and Dr. Susana Munoz, who will be discussing their new book, Why They Hate Us, How Racist Rhetoric Impacts Education, which was published in 2021. Dr. Lindsay Perez-Huber is a professor of education at California State University, Long Beach, as well as a visiting scholar at the UCLA Center for Critical Race Studies. Her research analyzes racial inequities in education, the impact on marginalized urban students of color, and how students in their communities respond to those inequities through strategies of persistence. Dr. Susana Munoz is an associate professor of education at Colorado State University. Her research focuses on issues of access, equity, and college persistence for undocumented Latina and Latino students. Lindsay and Susana, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your expertise with the listeners of the New Books Network. Um, can the two of you share a little bit about what led you
1: to writing Why They Hate Us? Sure. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about uh, our work and our book. Um, I uh, I guess I'll start, if that's okay, Susana. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so, I think for uh, what led to kind of the this particular project was um, some work I had been doing previously around um, trying to, to theorize what was happening during the um, during Trump's um, um, presidential campaign several years before, and so just seeing patterns in the racist rhetoric that was being used in his campaign. Um, Susanna and I both have been trained in ethnic studies and knowing that, you know, what we were seeing at that time around, you know, 2016 was not something new. And in fact, was a historical pattern of racist rhetoric, of discourses of white supremacy being used to garner political support. Um, And it was happening at a particular moment, right, following um, uh, the... a black president, right? And so, really trying to understand what was going on during that time, um, I was using, um, you know, a framework of racist nativism that we'll talk about uh, later in the interview to understand this kind of anti Latinx racism that was happening, um, and, and 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 wanting to know why it was happening at that particular moment. Um, And so looking at those historical patterns, not not only during the presidential presidential campaign, but of course, once uh, Trump was elected and seeing how that race, that racist rhetoric was then impacting the behaviors of his supporters um, was, I think, something that led to um, to us, you know, working on this project and wanting to know as 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 scholars in education, how this was impacting our students, students of color in particular, and communities of color, is it related to their educational experiences?
2: Yeah. So thanks for having me, Autumn. Um, I think the only thing I would add was the fact that um, during that time, I was also thinking about sort of this notion of the Trump effect on our college campuses and and thinking about how that impacts our campus climates. And so um, I've been in in my own work, engaging in sort of campus climate studies within my own state and thinking about um, how that impacts students um, um, ways of navigating not only their campus climates, but in what ways are they perceived by their peers um, due to the campus climate. And so I I felt like this was a really good opportunity to have a, a book that really looked at the educational pipeline um, from this perspective, and trying to also understand that this didn't start with Trump, this has been sort of a you know historical legacy of racist nativism. But um, we see lots of sort of like the the residual effects or the the impacts, the long lasting impacts that it has had on the educational opportunities and access for, in particular, students of color and immigrants. And um, so, yeah, so I think this was a a really good opportunity to sort of name it um, for what it was and and to really have these discussions um, from the educational pipeline perspective. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, that introduction
0: um, and really kind of uh, bringing us into your, your process for thinking about this book. Um, Dr. Perez-Huber, you, you alluded to you know sort of some of the pieces around how racist nativism plays into this. Um, and you open the book with an introduction that provides a history of racist rhetoric in the US, um, particularly as it's been used in political campaigns over the past several decades. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about racist nativism and how it serves as a framework for analyzing this racist rhetoric?
1: Yeah, so racist nativism, I theorized along um, with my my colleagues um, back in in 2008, 2009, to name something else we saw happening in the political sphere at that time, which was the introduction of a bill called HR 4437, which was an anti-immigrant bill, further criminalized undocumented communities, criminalized people who were supporting undocumented people and communities as well. Um, And so what was happening during that time was um, here, at least in in, um, Los Angeles, where I was living, was the largest kind of mass mobilization um, in the history of our city was a pro-immigrant rally to denounce HR 4437 that I participated in, um, along with some of the folks that I co-authored this piece with. And so really wanting to name the kind of virulent Anti Latinx racism that we were seeing during that time was where racist nativism came from. And so, racist nativism helps us understand, again, the significance of history, that these are historical patterns. They're not, you know, kind of particular historical moments that stand alone, that they're connected to, like Susana said, these broader legacies of racism and white supremacy. Um, and that it's also, I think, another critical component of, of racist nativism is that this form of racism has has. has targeted various groups of color, particularly immigrants of color, over time. Um, And it is based on um, perceptions, right? It's based on white perceptions of who belongs and who doesn't in the United States. And so um, at the time when we were theorizing racist nativism, it really helped us get at that intersection of racism and nativism that we were seeing. And I think has been a concept that has helped us name those moments when we see those intersections playing out over time, and when uh, you know we saw um, the, the the rhetoric that Trump was using in his presidential campaign, the racism of his administration, it really was, I think, a helpful concept to help us name what was going on, um, both both during you know before. During and after his presidency is that um, racist nativism is is a concept that really gets to the way that um, folks are being targeted because of this perception that they do not belong here. Right. And that their very presence is also a threat. Right. To um, to the 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 to our our, the white social structure. So. yeah, and, and I think Susanna's also used it in some really important ways as well.
2: Yeah, so I think one of the things to think about, like, racist nativism is really how um, that that notion has been, when well, we talk about it in the book, these articulations of racist nativism that can be found in not only the, the supporter behavior, but also in, in the ways in which um, our you know, who's deserving and undeserving of certain rights and privileges in this country. And so um, I think that also connects to sort of that, um, my chapter one, in terms of the uh, concept of whiteness as property, um, thinking about ways in which, um, you know, these, you know, we are are on stolen lands, right? And so thinking about ways that um, whiteness and white dominance sort of um, gets infiltrated in the ways to maintain sort of white dominance, and so we see this articulated in, you know, in examples it's like the the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. Um, you know, we will not be replaced is connected to whiteness as property in terms of like who, um, who's, who's, you know, who gets to enjoy liberties and rights in this country. Who gets to um, enjoy um, access? Who gets to? Um, who has the right to um, pr- prosper in this country? And white dominance and these racial hierarchies are certainly in inform the ways in which this this country dictates um, who gets to enjoy sort of these liberties um, that's rooted in, in white dominance. And so, um, and, and I think to. To um, Lindsay's point about sort of that this this is super entrenched in the historical legacy of immigration. So if you think of the fact that like our immigration is based on white supremacy and is racist inherently racist, we start to understand that these things are per- reproduced and perpetuated throughout history. Not only in terms of like the 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 acts and policies and the legislation that has been passed. Um, But also in terms of, um, in what ways has our educational systems, and in particular higher education, um, also emulated that behavior? Um, And so, so yeah, I think um, let's stop there. Yeah.
0: Well, and I know I I know, Dr. Munoz, that a lot of your work, um, your other work has focused on uh, the experiences of undocumented students in higher education. And um, and so I'm wondering if you could actually say even a little bit more about um, some of the ways that that whiteness as property plays out in higher education for for particularly particularly undocumented
2: students. Yeah. So I think um, we we have to understand that, um, you know, uh, it goes into these cycles, right? And so um, in, in, in the book, I use sort of the cycle of convergence, divergence, and reclamation to talk about sort of some policies that we see that, um, you know, once, once we have um, passed, like in-state tuition policies, that gives sort of just leveling out the playing field for undocumented and DACA students. Um, we see some states as that, um, you know that um, immigrants are taking away from others, and so, like the state of Texas, every year it feels like they're trying to take away that that um, that policy. So every year that becomes a very contentious um, contentious issue in the state, and so um, so we see it played out in sort of like the just the our attempts to level out the playing field, um, not even just. I'm not even talking about the welcoming environment, I'm just talking about even just um, a bit of access, just you know, trying to get at the door at this moment. Um, and so so we see that in our in-state tuition policies in terms of um, the, state, the state ideologies really dictate sort of in, in ways in which um, states decide who gets to enjoy um, those rights, um, who gets to keep those rights um, and, and there's been states that have had certain. Um, I'll take Arizona for instance. Had in in situation policies for DACA students that um, got taken away. So it's really dependent on the ideology of those states. And oh, go ahead. So I was just gonna say. I
1: think another place where we see this um, is in kind of uh, when we think about this concept of reclamation from the the CDR model, right? That. and and critical race theorists uh, in the legal field have have been talking about this for a long time. Whenever we see any movement, any positive movement made toward gaining more rights for undocumented students, undocumented communities, we're always going to see this pattern of retrenchment or reclamation, right, of those rights. And so I think for, you know, DACA and uh, a lot of the tuition policies that we've had from state to state, students have been able to enjoy a little bit more access, right, or or, or have have gained a little bit more access to higher education. Um, But now with this new Supreme Court, right? I think um, there, there there really is some some grave concern around the future of Plyler, right? And what that means for undocumented students and undocumented communities when we've seen right the rights of women kind of go out the door with this Supreme Court. It's kind of you know we're you know folks are asking like, what's next. Right, and I think that there's some some really great concern to be had around the future. I think of, of educational access for undocumented students, and the t- like Susanna said, the type of climates, right? Because of of those kind of policy deci- decisions are going to be made for um, undocumented students in higher ed, and also in in K twelve schools. Um, and and so that I think that's another way, right? That that this idea of, of whiteness as property also plays out is that that you know. The, the the gains of, of people of color are, are temporary. <laughs> Yep.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think I think explaining that that cycle of retrenchment is, is really valuable. And I think there, that several of the, the scholars who have chapters in the books kind of talk about pieces of that. And um, which kind of leads me to really asking uh, some questions around um, uh, since Why They Hate Us really features chapters from other scholars and is an edited volume. Can you talk a little bit about the process the two of you went through in terms of curating the edited volume and really, really thinking about what what needed to be included um, within this book?
1: Yeah, well, I think one thing that we wanted to do is we wanted to ensure that it wasn't um, it wasn't, you know, education wasn't talked about kind of in silos, that this was happening not just in higher education and not just in K-12 education. This was, this is, this is a, this racist rhetoric was was impacting, negatively impacting, violently impacting the lives of students across the pipeline. And so ensuring that we told the stories, right, of, of students um, at, in in both levels or I guess in all levels of higher education because we actually tell k-12 stories community college stories and and four-year stories in in this book um, so that was that was something important and I think um, a couple of the folks that you know um, w- we both kind of brought folks that we had we had known and, and work that we were familiar with um, at the time I think you um, uh, so my, my, my mentor, Danny Solorsano, who chaired my dissertation, who I continue to work with, has um, this course he teaches called the RAC, the Research Apprenticeship Course. Um, we've actually gone to his RAC and presented this book as well in that space. Uh, it's become, I think, a really important space because it brings together scholars to talk about their work. It brings together students to talk about their work. And there's a few uh, people um, that are included in this book that came to that RAC to present. Um, Tanya is one of those student. Uh, well, now she's a professor, but formerly a student, um, Sylvia, now a professor, also a student at the time, um, were, were two folks whose presentations I had seen in that rack, in that space, um, and, and that became authors in, in this book.
2: Yeah, and the other thing that I would add to is that we didn't want, you know, this, this is not just like a Latino, Latinx issue, right? And so highlighting that this is really complex and that immigration and, um, you know, immigration policies really impact, you know, many individuals, you know, across race, across, you know, different, different other multiple multiple identities. And so there is a chapter around sort of like refugee college students. And so um, particularly Muslim refugee black students. And so we think about this issue in very intersectional ways and ways that we, we really need. That's sort of where we probably need to expand and move way more, is to think about um, sort of this like hate rhetoric, this racist rhetoric that you um, know intersects with um, anti-blackness. You know, um, sort of the in the anti-Muslim um, regime and. And so in thinking about immigrant and refugee students in ways that um, it's the legal status is is also complex and complicated in many ways by these immigration policies. And so um, so I think that's where I think we we also highlight um, some work um, by some scholars and students from um, Arizona State. But also we feel like I feel very deeply that that's where the work also needs to be, um, you know, taken forward as well, we don't talk enough about this this intersectional ways of looking at these issues.
0: Well, and I, I think you know, as I was reading, as I was reading all of the chapters too, one of the things that struck me, and, and I think you were both already alluding to this, is not just sort of the intersectional aspects around identity, but like how much it depends on on where, like that that it's not just federal policy; it's also state and look like really looking at some of the the policies and um, uh, legislature that's happening state by state, like thinking about the ways that um, you know sort of the our national conversation impacts what's happening at the state level and and sort of these microcosm things that are happening at the state level also impact sort of um racist rhetoric nationally. And, and I think the the um, Unite the Right rally, I think, you know, was sort of something that was happening nationally, but played out, you know, in a, in a more geographical sort of region and then rippled back out um, uh, nationally. And so I'm wondering if there are ways that um, you can talk about how, um, as you were sort of researching or as you were writing the book, um, the ways that some of those geographical differences Um, we're sort of impacting um, conversations um, in terms of how racist rhetoric was impacting immigrant students um, in different states.
2: I don't, does that make sense to the two of you? Yeah. Yeah. So I I think one of the things that I would say is that um, I think we need to be really careful and and cautious to to think of like a state like California as this very progressive, very um, immigrant friendly state I think there I think there are very much pockets of um, pockets of resilience, pockets of, of radical hope, pockets of um, just organized community organizing that's happening. Um, and I think that's what I see um, sort of like when we talk about specific states. I think it's important to keep in mind that um, white supremacy isn't necessarily contained in conservative states. Right. It's, it's very much um, everywhere across the nation. Um, I think where I find the most hope and is that even in those conservative states, there are mobilizing and organizing happening um, to, to support immigrants and support refugees. Um, and so I think when we look at across the nation, um, you know, thinking about ways in which um, we're honest about naming it, right? Um, Just because I live in Colorado and we have in-state tuition policies and we have a pretty um, progressive governor doesn't necessarily mean that we don't have white supremacists that live in our state and and that aren't mobilizing themselves. So I think an honest conversation about the fact that we do have a white supremacist problem in all of our states, I think, is warranted um, in that aspect.
1: Yeah, like I think um, chapter four, um, there was a group who was working from, um, actually was working in the community of San Diego in California, and and when we think about um, (laughs) right, just like Susana is saying, when we think about California, we think about Gavin Newsom and the very progressive democratic agenda. Um, But that I think that story was so important because it gets exactly to what Susana just said: is it shows that you know in these communities, in there's these pockets of our state. Um, and in this particular um, uh, study, it was it was interesting because it's also kind of a um, it's close to the U.S. Mexico border, right? And so it, there's these pockets of very conservative communities, and those those patterns of racist nativism are are um, you know are playing out in those communities as well. And and this particular chapter um, uh, also talks about how white educators right deal how white educators can support undocumented students, because the, the majority of our educators in K-12 are white. And so, you know, how do also white educators play a role in mitigating or, you know, um, supporting students in this very racist nativist climate was, uh, I think, a, another important contribution that was made from from that chapter. And then um, John Rogers and Michael Ishimoto and their chapter, Um, Their chapter was a national study, right? So looking at how school climates are being impacted across the nation, I think really provide evidence to what Susana was just talking about is that these patterns of racist nativism of of these very um, racist discourses are something that we see across the nation. Um, in our schools, and that are negatively impacting our students. So not just something happening in Arizona, or in uh, Louisiana, or in Alabama, right? It's happening all over the state. And, and that's, I think, a, a great contribution they made was to show this national pattern.
0: Yeah. Well, and I, I certainly think kind of, you know, based on what both of you are saying, you know, we've seen over the last couple of years that, that white supremacists are also not not reluctant to cross state lines you know to to go to various places in order to to um, sort of mobilize in in really toxic ways against students um, and against uh, uh, immigrants and you know the the reunite the right I think was an example of that January 6th like all all of these are sort of where a lot of the folks are coming from I live in Iowa you know I think a lot of the the, the folks who have done a lot of that traveling have been coming from the Midwest and um, and so thinking thinking about that you know even if it is something that's happening in a particular region of our country, that, that that's not necessarily where all of the, that this is a national issue where, where, where white supremacy and, and sort of the, the the reentrenchment of like, we need to reassert sort of pieces of this. And um, it is something that is happening sort of on that national level, regardless of where the, the sort of local piece is playing out.
1: That's right. And and I wish, uh, I I guess I don't wish this, but (laughs) I think about when January 6th happened, right? We had, we had just, the the book had just been published, right? So we didn't get a chance to talk about this in the book, but Susanna and I uh, wrote a blog for Teachers College Press, the publisher, um, because it was just such this, it, it was just such a clear example of, of what, this book was about, right? To see how racist nativism directly impacts the violent behaviors of Trump supporters and the threat to white dominance, to the structures of white supremacy was just, I I think, if I think about any kind of major event, probably no other event was as clear as that January 6th insurrection.
2: Yeah, we had a hard time concluding this book because just stuff kept happening, you know, and we talk about the, you know, the police violence against black men. We talked about sort of what was happening with DACA and, um, and what was happening on our campus, you, you know, and how everyone all of a sudden became avowedly anti-racist at that moment, right? And so we wanted to also complicate, you know, what. What does this mean when, you know, Nike becomes anti-racist or McDonald's is anti-racist? And so I think it, it's way more complex than these um, that sort of performative activism and rhetoric that we, we saw. We, you know, and the other component was that, um, you know, this goes back to another concept in the book that we talk about in, in chapter one around the great replacement theory in terms of that's a historical concept that, um, you know, the right wing um, party has really latched on to in terms of um, the, the, the demographic changes that are happening in our country are certainly things that people are looking at in terms of um, whiteness, you know, and, and where and, and what whiteness and white dominance looks like. And so I think that is also an important contribution of this book is that there's a lot of historical nuances that we kind of call out that is actually being used as political strategy in terms of the messaging around, um, you know, the question who, who is deserving or undeserving to be in this country.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and I think that that was one of the points um, that I think was made a couple times in the book, particularly in the intro and in chapter one, you know, that, um, you know, some of what you were saying at the beginning, Dr. Perez Huber was a, around, you know, how you were watching sort of what was happening with Trump's um, campaign, but that none of the, none of the rhetoric Trump was using was, was necessarily new or his. And, and I, I think really coming back to that point that, that, that this has been a cycle and, 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 um, you know, certainly I think um, you call out in the book in a couple of places that the, the there was a, a a greater visibility maybe with some of the the things that were happening around the Trump campaign, but that was not, none of it was new language or, or new sort of, um, tools for, um, uh, Pushing forward this racist rhetoric, and and so uh, I'm wondering if either of you have anything that you would like to add, sort of uh, about some of that that cycle that you you sort of talked about, how how this is language that we've seen come up over and over, or or patterns that we've seen come up over and over in terms of
1: um, some of that racist nativism and
0: and, and pieces of that.
1: So in um, the the final chapter that Susanna was talking about. Um, we called it the racism pandemic because of these multiple layer these multiple pandemics that we were dealing with. Um, we were we were dealing with, of course, during during the time we wrote. Actually, I think this book was written entirely during the pandemic, right? during COVID. And so, you know, I, communities of color were suffering, were, were dying. As we were writing this book, um, so there is there's the racist rhetoric. There is the kind of um, you know the 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 ways that the pandemic had you know um, I'm, I'm losing the, the word made worse. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the, the the good word for made worse, right? Made worse the conditions and lives of of, of, of communities that have been historically marginalized, right. Who were, didn't have access, you know, to, to healthcare, who were essential workers who had to be showing up and exposing themselves to, you know, getting sick. Um, and, and, and so there was like this, this convergence of events that were happening that really just highlighted how, um, how dire the conditions were that white supremacy has created. Um, and so, When we look at these historical patterns, right? We understand that yes, this isn't something something new, but it also presented this opportunity to really think about what happens when these multiple kind of global events converge, right? When we see the the activism of Black Lives Matter, um, you know, folks demanding for um, you know an end to police brutality, to 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 murder of Black people, um, it 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 was something I think we were trying to kind of work through that was also emotionally emotionally draining for us as we were also experiencing, um, you know, um, the effects of some of these events. And so I, I think that um, one thing that, uh, one concept that we talk about in this chapter was the uh, Derek Bell's theory of racial realism. And that is the... The, the theory that, you know, racism was, it is, and it always will be, it will always be a part of um, U.S. society. It will always, racism will always be present in the ways that our social systems operate in, you know, our daily interactions. And so, so then what? <laughs> so, so knowing this, then what, right? So we know then that those patterns of racism, of racist nativism are going to continue Um, But one thing that we talked about in in the book was, you know, the the hope that this activism brings us in thinking about how how future generations then respond to those historical patterns. And I think one thing that's really hopeful for me as I see, you know, uh, Susanna and I are are, um, both parents. Right. And we see our daughters um, when I see my daughter, you know, who's going off to college and I I seek the type of critical analysis that she has as a young person, just beginning her college career, I, I mean, she's like so ahead of me, <laughs> right? She's she's ahead of me in many ways where I am today. Um, and just seeing kind of the, the critical consciousness that our youth already have, um, I think really brings a lot of hope, their intentionality around uh, self-care, their intentionality around the language they use, which was something when I was growing up that I had no, I mean, I, I was not anywhere close to that. That was something I learned, you know, as a college student, as a grad student. Um, that, that's something I think that is hopeful in, in thinking about how future generations are going to respond to these patterns of, of racism, of, of white supremacy, of racist
2: nativism. I would totally echo that. I think um, I have a lot of hope in, in our youth, and I also, you know, think um, I hope that our educational system becomes more emboldened to really highlight some of these societal issues as ways, you know, to to educate our students. And I think I get, you know, I get disheartened with the whole critical race theory um, conversation that we've been having as a nation. And it's it's infuriating because, you um, it's, it's being co-opted as something that is, it is not right. And so I think for me, it's, um, as someone that identifies a critical race color, it's, you know, it's being, um, used as a tactic to silence individuals that are doing the work that want to do the work that want to really, um, make our spaces in our educational system, um, more humane for our students. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's apparent to our youth what is happening in our country. They know it. Um, we and I, I I hope that our that we also have responsibility, or have institutions take the responsibility also to to have those really um, challenging and difficult conversations. You know, in the classroom. You know, in our policies and the ways that we onboard faculty and staff and how we hire teachers. Um, you know, this, um, what would I call racial literacy that, are, that we're needing to have these discussions to unpack what is happening in our society is, is what is going to um, be not only create nurturing spaces but liberatory spaces for our students.
0: What are, what are the two of you working on now? You know, whether that be together or separately, where, where, where is the next couple of years taking you? Well,
2: I'm gonna be on sabbatical. So <laughs> I'm going to take a year off to um, really just, you know, not focus on, on just my spirit and my soul and just replenishing that too, but also um, looking at, um, you know, more so community colleges and sort of that transfer process for DACA for and undocumented students, but under the guise of what do we mean when we talk about servingness? And especially if it's a Hispanic serving institution. So really kind of um, you know, disrupt or interrogate a little bit more about what what institutions need to be doing in, in, in interrogating not only white supremacy but also this notion of servingness and how we um you know construct a transfer process and um I don't, Lindsay, I know we need to probably work on another project together because I think this <laughs> does that so well.
1: <laughs> yes yes definitely um, I, I, you know, I I'm very excited about you know the future work that that we'll do together this because this uh, I think you know, um, we've talked about this in other spaces. We didn't have some uh, talk about it so much today, but you know the the piece that we don't often talk about uh, about you know working in collaboration to put projects like these together um, was such you know just a, an enjoyable experience, a healing experience. Working with Susanna to during a pandemic when you're completely isolated, stuck at home, be able to come on Zoom and talk to each other about you know a, a, about about this project and about. Um, you know, theorizing together and, 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 and also writing about what was happening in the moment, right? Like we did in in how we concluded the book was um, just, you know, such a, such a joy for me. Um, And, and I, I, I learned so much from Susanna and got so much out of this project, just kind of personally. Um, So, you know, I think, you know, continuing those relationships are so important in in this work and the work that we do, because those are what sustain you, you know, in many ways. Um, And so, Uh, Something I'm I'm working on right now is I'm I'm looking at, um, you know, the kind of everyday ways that racism um, is experienced by folks of color with the concept of microaggressions. I'm I'm looking at how um, uh, faculty um, of color are experiencing racial microaggressions in a campus where um, there has been some intention in wanting to develop an anti-racist climate right, and, and an inclusive climate. And so we've looked at microaggressions in predominantly white spaces that, that we know are, you know, usually hostile to faculty of color. But because there's this push now, like Susanna mentioned, of institutions, you know, becoming anti-racist and making statements about anti-Blackness, um, what does that mean for the ways that folks of color in those campuses experience racism? Does it change? And so that's one thing that I'm looking at right now. And, and also kind of turning to um, you know, experiences of healing is looking at micro So I'm also working on a study looking at um, experiences of, of students of color, of graduate students of color um, with racial micro So the everyday ways that we validate and acknowledge the, the humanity of, of people of color that, um, that sustain us, that allow us to thrive, that heal. Uh, and so that's another project that, that I'm working on.
2: Awesome.
0: Well, thank you both so much for spending some time with us today, um, and for everybody who is uh, is listening um, as a listener of the New Books Network. If you haven't already read um, Why They Hate Us, um, I highly recommend going out and getting a copy of the book. Um, this this conversation today just just touches on some of some of the many many um, important points that are made throughout the book, and and so I highly recommend that folks. Uh, check out the book and, and spend some time um, not only listening to this podcast but also um, reading and and thinking more deeply about these issues uh, thank you thank you